Father, we ask for your help as we turn uh, to your word. Lord, we know that we are, um, we are unable uh, in our own kind of natural understanding, in our own natural mind, we're unable to, uh, to, to make sense of uh, even the clearest of passages. We're, we're unable to, to see the glory of Jesus um, in your text apart from, uh, apart from the Spirit's work. And so we ask for, for you to send your Holy Spirit to open our minds and open our hearts to the goodness of this passage, to the goodness of your word, which would lead us to see the goodness um, that resides in you. And so, God, uh, help us. Help us to come to your word humble. Uh, help us to come to your word hungry. Help us to come to your word expecting uh, you to do something in each of us. We ask, God, as we come to your word that, that you would direct our mind and our hearts to Jesus, that we would walk out of here uh, renewed in our, our affection for him, uh, renewed in our dependence upon him and, and with a renewed sense of his faithfulness uh, and his goodness and his ability to speak into uh, the problems of our lives and, and the problems of our world. And so God, help us. Father, help me as well. God, be gracious to me uh, to, to say things that only line up with your word and uh, that are truthful and right and good uh, and, and keep me from, uh, from uttering anything uh, that would be contrary to that. We ask uh, for your help and we thank you that you promised to give it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the middle of our series uh, called Kingdom Prayers, where we're looking at uh, the kingdom of God and prayer. How do these two things intersect? What does it look like for us to pray for the kingdom of God uh, to come on earth as it is in heaven. And so last week we looked at uh, just prayer in general, where Jesus is teaching us uh, how to pray. He teaches his disciples how to pray, and he teaches them to, to pray, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which is what he teaches in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And so now what we're going to be beginning to do is we're going to look at that prayer of praying for the Lord's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to look at the Lord's Prayer in that regard, and we're going to see how how praying that prayer uh, intersects with the, with the needs and problems of our lives and the needs and problems of our world and our culture. And so this week, given that it is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, we're going to look at the topic of racial justice and racial reconciliation and think about what does it look like for us to pray for God's kingdom to come, to break in to certain parts of our lives, certain parts of our world, and for Jesus' rule to break in into a certain area so that area of our life or that area of our world no longer looks in the broken manner that it exists currently, but begins to reflect the king's heart and desire. And so we're going to look at what does it look like to pray for the kingdom of God to come in the area of racial reconciliation and racial justice, okay? I want to start uh, first, though, before we do that, I want to start with a, uh, with a little historical thing. Is that okay for you guys? Can we do a little history? Yes or no? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Good. You know you have no other choice, so <laughs> might as well just say yes. Okay, so a little, a little history for us. Okay, eight, uh, 1786. St. George Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That church included black and white people worshiping together. But then, you guys know the turn we're going to take, but then uh, white members met and decided that the black members should only be allowed to sit in the balcony. So you have two, uh, two gentlemen, a part of that church, Absalom Jones and Richard Allen, who come 
before service, just kind of imagine, just imagine this is you coming in before service, you walk in, and they come and they sit in the front, and they're praying, and they're getting ready to worship, and they're preparing their hearts to worship with the people of God, and they're up there in the front, and as the service is beginning to go and getting underway, uh, some of the ushers come and say, you need to move from here into the back. You can't, you can't be up here. And they're saying, why? why? But you need to move from here, and you need to move into the back. You, you can't worship up here. And so Mr. Jones and Mr. Allen move from their seats and begin walking. But they don't walk to the back. They walk out the door, <laughs> never to return. So let me ask you this question. Is that a picture of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven? When Jesus is envisioning his reign and rule, breaking into the lives of sinners in need of his grace, is that the picture of the kingdom of heaven? That is not the picture of the kingdom of heaven. That is a picture of a dividing wall of hostility. That's a picture of a dividing wall of hostility. And it doesn't take us much to see that that dividing wall of hostility still stands. We don't have to go too far to see that. We can look at the comments of our president about countries, Haiti, Africa, represented in this room, and see that the dividing wall of hostility still stands. And so we must ask the question, what is the kingdom of God supposed to look like? How does the kingdom of God overtake, overcome, knock down this dividing wall of hostility that exists when we see differences between us, particularly around racial or ethnic lines? What does it look like for the kingdom of God to come and address this dividing wall of hostility? Thankfully, God's word speaks to so many different situations, either directly or indirectly. God has given us uh, his wisdom, his revelation, and preserved it for us through his word. And so I want us to look at the book of Ephesians. And I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 2, just a couple of verses that are going to help us understand what it looks like for the kingdom of God to come around this issue or topic of uh, racial justice and racial reconciliation. Ephesians 2 is a, a really well-known chapter in Scripture, the first uh, eight, uh, rather, the first ten verses outlining what God uh, has done through Jesus to bring us into relationship with Him. And then the back half of chapter two really outlines how that grace that, that God has given to us, how that grace now extends out to one another and brings a restoration towards one another. So the first ten chapters talk about this restoration that we have vertically through the grace of Jesus. And then the back half of that chapter talks about this restoration that flows out horizontally because of the vertical restoration that we have received from Jesus himself. And so as we look at this chapter, we're actually going to see that there is a, uh, a reality for us to learn from that speaks into our current and present situation. So let's look at the text. Uh, we're going to look at verses 14 through um, 18. 
Now, Paul, uh, the apostle who's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, uh, he is speaking to a church that has tension around racial and ethnic lines. He's speaking to a church that is full of Jews and Gentiles. When you hear Gentiles and see Gentiles in the Bible, think of Gentiles in terms of this. It's just basically uh, all nations. It's, it's, it's anything, basically. It could be African. It could be Asian. It could be Jamaican. It's, it's, it's anything that is really non-Jewish. It's, it really means the nations, the world, right? So, so it's this church filled with all these people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different color, different ethnicity, different race, and Paul is speaking to them so that within this church, they know what it looks like to treat one another equitably and with respect and with dignity. And the reason Paul has to explain this to them is because Jew and Gentile did not get along. There was a dividing wall of hostility among them. So let's look at the text. Paul is now speaking to Jew and Gentile. Verse 14, Paul says this, for he himself, Jesus, for Jesus is our peace, who made us, Jew and Gentile, who made Jew and Gentile both one and has broken down in his flesh, Jesus's body, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he, Jesus, might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached to you who were far off, Gentiles, far away from God, didn't have the traditions of of the Old Testament, He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you to those who were near, to the Jews. So Paul is writing this little section here in Ephesians to help Jew and Gentile who were at one another's neck and throat for them to understand, no, Jesus has come and done something in both of you that now makes us one. That now changes the way we interact with one another. That now changes the way we relate to one another. That breaks down, what's the language that he used? It breaks down the dividing what? Dividing wall of hostility. That Jesus has done something. So a couple of things that I want us to see. Um, I want us to first look at this divide. When we think about the kingdom of God coming and bringing racial justice, there's a couple things we need to see. We need to see the divide. We need to have awareness about it before we can see the solution. We need to understand the divide. Right? We need to understand this divide. So here in this first century context that Paul is writing into, the people of God, the, the Israel, the Jews, they viewed Gentiles as unclean, uh, filthy, and unable to worship and know God because, guess what, Gentiles had no access to the Scriptures. They weren't around it. It wasn't their tradition. It wasn't their culture. They didn't know anything about it. So all the type of ceremonial regulations about cleanliness, about Sabbath keeping, about what you can eat and what you can't eat, what you can wear and what you can't wear, all of these ceremonial external things that the people of God had done in order to externally be clean and right, all of those things, a Gentile had no clue. They had no idea. So when the Jews saw the Gentile, all they thought was, look at these people who have no idea, right? They do everything the opposite. They have no understanding of what it means to know the one true God. So the, so the Jews looked at them in this way and just said, you are unclean. Now the Gentiles on the other side, they looked at the Jews and said, these people are so hoity-toity. These people think they got it all together with this and that and all, right? There's just, there's just this divide between them. 
There's a hostility between them. Now, when the good news of Jesus comes and, and the gospel is preached and people, Jew and Gentile, begin to understand, no, no, it's, it's never been through our goodness that God would save us. It's never been through our obedience that God would save us. Jesus has obeyed in our place. We receive him by faith. When Jew and Gentile start to understand this, they start to see, oh, okay, we're on equal ground, equally sinful and equally forgiven through Jesus. They start to, they start to see that. They start to come into the same house churches, but there's still tension. There's still residual effects. There's still past history. And so Paul repeatedly has to explain that in the kingdom of God, there is no second class. And so Paul continues to work through this for them. Now, imagine this, right? In uh, any letter that we read to a church in the New Testament is something when they're going to hear it, they're all in the same living room together, reading it and hearing it out loud. It would be something that they would read out loud together over and over. So imagine being in the, the house in the middle of Ephesus with the 30, 40 people of the church of Ephesus, or maybe 80 people of the church of Ephesus, and hearing this letter read out loud. And being in a room with somebody who's maybe looked at you sideways from the moment that you became baptized because you were a Gentile. And hearing Paul explain authoritatively, speaking is with the authority of Jesus, that the dividing wall is broken. There would be an electricity moving and going through the room. And this, even this phrase, this dividing wall of hostility, it means so much to the original hearers because when they would go to the temple to worship, guess what there actually was separating Jew and Gentile? A literal wall. An actual outer court wall with an inscription that would say something to the effects of, if you go past here and you are a Gentile or unclean, your death would be upon your own hands. This idea that if anything were to happen to you going forward from here, it is upon you. It is your own responsibility. You have ventured into a place where you are not welcome. So this dividing wall of hostility was literal and figurative. It was real. But God's plan and heart from the very beginning of Scripture was not for there to be a dividing wall among His people, but for there to be one kingdom full of his people from all tribes, nation, and tongues, multi-ethnic, multicultural, multinational, all under the one true king, Jesus Christ. This is God's creational intent from the very beginning of Scripture. But sin seeps in and brings walls of hostility and division. But God's heart for his church is that we would be one and that we would reflect the unity and diversity of the kingdom of God to the world so that the world would look at the church and say, that's what it looks like for people of different cultures, backgrounds to come together. Unfortunately, though, that hasn't quite been the case, has it? So that's the divide, but we need to understand and have some awareness about what that divide looks like in the 21st century, not just the first century. So we talked about Absalom Jones and we talked about Richard Allen, that moment where they were worshiping in the tradition, faith tradition that they grew up in, were told to move to the back because of, their, because of their heritage, because of their skin color. They moved to the back, but then they go out the door and what did they do? They found the African-American Methodist Episcopal Church, the AME. And this is how we have a black church. 
you maybe have heard, heard the thing said, heard this quote said, attributed to many different people, that 11 o'clock Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in the nation. How many of you have heard that before, right? Well, why is that? Well, it's because black people were not allowed by white people to worship together. So the black people said, well, we got to worship Jesus somewhere. We're going to make our own churches. That's why we have that problem. So the reason for the division is sin within itself. We have to be aware about the divide in order to address the divide. And here is one of the reasons for the divide that we must become aware of. When we think about the divide, not just in the first century, but in the 21st century, we have to be aware of this type of, uh, this, this reality. And, and I want to give you this phrase, I think it's a helpful phrase. We have to be aware of this root cause of the divide that we see in the church, in our country, or even in our own relationships. And it's this idea of the, it's this narrative, it's the narrative of racial difference. It's the narrative of racial difference. Let me read you a quote uh, about this idea from a, a man named Brian Stevenson, a lawyer, advocate, um, and, and, a, and, a, and an author. He, he says this. Um, he says, the idea that white is better was created during the era of slavery. It was a necessary theory to make white Christian people feel comfortable with the ownership of other human beings. And this created a narrative of racial difference in this country to sustain slavery. And even people who didn't own slaves bought into that narrative, including people in the North. So this narrative of racial difference has done destructive things in our society. Lots of countries had slaves, but they were mostly societies with slaves. We have become something different. We have became a slave society. We created a narrative of racial difference to maintain slavery. The Emancipation Proclamation does not discuss the narrative of racial difference. So I don't believe slavery ended in 1865. I believe it simply just evolved. So when we think about in our moment, in our country, in our city, in our society, what, why do we have these dividing walls of hostility? Well, it's really because of this narrative of racial difference. It's a narrative of racial difference. It is a narrative uh, that says white is normal, white is better, everything else is either slightly inferior or extremely inferior. Whatever it says on that curve, it's the same narrative. It's a narrative of racial difference. It's an ideology of white supremacy. That white is supreme, white is standard, everything else is substandard. If we want to speak about the kingdom of God breaking into these uh, dividing walls in our society, we have to speak frankly about this issue. We have to have awareness about the seeds, the building blocks of this wall of hostility. We have to understand this idea of racial difference. This ideology has created a wall of hostility in our country, in our city, in us. And while we might not have this wall of hostility in an extreme sense, we might have a wall of indifference. We might have a, a wall of a lack of love. We might have a wall of suspicion. We might have a wall of skepticism, right? This narrative of racial difference has impacted and affected us. And so we have to pray for the kingdom of God to break in and do something that we have not been able to do in this country from its very beginnings. 
one of the ways that we see the kingdom of God break in and to tear down this dividing wall of hostility uh, is through awareness. We're, we need to be aware of this narrative of racial difference. We also need to be aware of, uh, of what does Jesus Christ, how does he feel about this dividing wall of hostility? We talked about last week that the kingdom of God is, is any place uh, or any life uh, or person where that person says, I trust Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I am bowing my life to his word, to his will, to his way. Anywhere you see that happen is a picture of the kingdom of God. That's why God is establishing his kingdom on earth right now through us, through our lives. We're little pictures of the kingdom of God. We're carriers of the kingdom of God. And so when we think about this topic of, of racial justice and racial reconciliation, we have to understand, okay, what does the king, Jesus Christ, how does he feel about this? How does he feel about people coming to worship under his name and being told, you need to, if you're going to do that, at least just be in the back? How, how does he feel about it? How does he feel about the, the, the Bible being taught and held up in the right hand While, while a chain is being held in the left hand, uh, enslaving another human being. How does he feel about that? H how does Jesus Christ feel about these things? And when we begin to look at the heart of the king in Scripture, we, we, we understand that, that Jesus Christ is grieved. That Jesus Christ weeps. That Jesus Christ's heart is crushed as he looks at people that he's made with dignity, whom he desires to come to know him and to be in a global family called the church, and instead of embracing and welcoming, people are excluded, enslaved, harmed, degraded, and turned away. Jesus is grieved. But positively, Jesus is so eager to see his kingdom established, a kingdom with people from all different backgrounds. Jesus is so eager to see that, that he dies for it. That Jesus has a sense as he is dying, he has a sense of what he is bringing into existence, that he is, he is making the way for people from all nations, all tribes, all tongues to be brought into God's kingdom. And let me tell you this, how many things are you willing to die for? I mean, there's one or two, right? Maybe one, maybe like a half. Some of you are like, I'd die for heat in this room right now for, the, for everyone else. I'll die for them. You guys notice me. You never, like, he just usually doesn't rub his hands so much while he preaches. <laughs> yeah, it's the spirit. No, it's, it's not the spirit. It's the cold, right? Some of you would die for heat in this room, right? Think of this thing. What are the, what are the things you would really lay your life down for? Not many, right? Jesus Christ lays his life down to establish a kingdom full of people from all tribes, nations, and tongues. When heaven is described in the book of Revelation, it describes that kings and queens will bring their glory from the nations, will bring their glory into the new heaven. That glory is their culture. That means there is something about Haitian culture, contrary to what our president says, that God sees and says, this is so good, it needs to be in heaven. There is something about Japanese culture that Jesus sees and savors and says, this needs to be in heaven. There is something about Korean culture that Jesus Christ sees and says, this needs to be in heaven. 
There's something about Irish culture that Jesus Christ sees and says, this must be in the new, redeemed, remade world. It has to be here because the goodness of God is in that thing. So that's Jesus' heart. So we have to have awareness if we're going to pray for the kingdom to come, if we're going to work to see the kingdom to come. We have to understand the divide. We have to be aware of the problem. But we also need to be aware of the king's heart, that Jesus cares so much that he dies for this. The Holy Spirit cares so much that he roams the world, he roams the earth, and you know what he does? He pricks the conscience of people who have bought into the narrative of racial difference to convict them of their sin so that they would repent. That's what he does. That's how dedicated he is to this. He pricks the conscience of people who have believed that they are inferior based on their culture and says, no, you're made in the image of God. That's how much he cares. The Father cares so much that before time was established, he chose people from all tribes, nations, and tugs and says, before you're even made, I want you in my kingdom. That's how much God cares. So we need to be aware of the problem, but we also need to be aware of the heart of the king of the kingdom. But we also must be aware of the place uh, that we live in. We need to be aware that our society is racialized. That means our society has has been infected with, uh, with this narrative of racial difference so that our society functions in such a way that there are plus points for skin color or minus points for skin color. There are plus points for culture. There are minus points for culture. That is just the facts of our society. That is just the way it is. We need to understand this. And we also need to understand if we're going to see the kingdom of God come, we need to understand this as well without feeling guilty. We need to understand this, that if you were to come into a a house that was passed down to you from your forefathers uh, after century, after century, after century, and it is given to you and you inherit it and now you live in it every day of your life, but as you live in it, you, 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 you realize, oh, you know what? The people that owned this house before me were smokers. They smoked a pack every day. And while the house is beautiful and the furniture is luxurious and the design is great and the layout is is excellent, they smoked every single day. And so as you live in the house, you realize that even though you're not a smoker, the secondhand residual effect from a pack being smoked in that house every single day, century after century, has now started to affect your breathing. It's now started to affect your lungs. It's now started to affect your health. That is what it means to be an American. There is no way you can say you are not affected by the racialization of our society. The narrative of racial difference is so profound, none of us are untouched by it, either with a tinge of unconscious feelings of superiority or a tinge of unconscious feelings of inferiority. There is no way any of us have been untouched by this. We have to be aware. You can think about it like this. When was the first moment you became aware of racial difference? What was the first moment? Your answer to this question will, will tell you, will prove to you the racialization of our society. It will tell you. There's a, a writer named uh, Beverly Tatum, uh, a doctor actually, uh, and she says, from the moment that we are born, we are taught that white is good and normal, everything else is less than. From the moment we are born, 
There is no way that does not impact us. We see this even here in Boston. The Globe recently ran this big uh, spotlight research project. Um, they wanted people to read it so bad they even made it free. But one of the facts from this was about net worth. It's about your kind of general, like how much you really own, not just in your bank account, everything that you are worth. And the net worth difference <laughs> between white people and black people was pretty staggering. Black people's net worth in, uh, in Boston, $8. White people's net worth, 224000 How was that possible? Well, history shows us how it's possible. If you believe a narrative of racial difference and then you enact policies based on that narrative, it makes sense. If you can't get a loan to buy a house, even though you have the money, your net worth will not go anywhere. If uh, a bunch of black people sell weed and go to jail and then <laughs> two years later, guess what's legal? Weed. And read every article about these weed, new weed businesses. You want to know who's getting rich? Old white women. I'm glad women do your thing, but let some of us get some of it, right? <laughs> Give a little bit, right? So, so just think about this. You have people upon people going to jail for now something that other people are now doing and getting rich from. Why, why are we okay with this? Another Boston and Chicago study to show the racialization of our society they did, a, uh, a, they did resumes submitted to jobs, identical resumes. They changed one thing. What do you think they changed? The name. They changed the name from Bill and Jill. Maybe. I don't know what, what it was. But they changed the names to Jamal and Lakeisha. Okay. We can guess where this went. Uh, the Jamal and Lakeisha were not getting many calls back. When they replaced those with white-sounding names, there was a 50% increase in the callbacks. Everything else identical. Everything else identical. I mean, I talk, this is a real thing. I talk about this with someone in our church when she was trying to find a place to live in Boston. Exact experience. Why? It's a narrative of racial difference. We believe that white is normal. Everything else is less than. This is not the way the kingdom of God is meant to be. This affects not just black and white, this affects all ethnicities, all cultures, right? We can think about um, the history of internment camps in our country for Japanese, Americans, citizens. We could think about the burden put on Asian Americans where this is the idea of the model minority, where you have this idea that black people are like this and they're like kind of not smart and all this other stuff, and then you put the burden on Asian Americans that they're the model minority. Well, if only black people were like this. Right? And they just, kind of, they just kind of exclude them, right? This goes across lines. We think about comments from our president about uh, Latino and Latina people, right? This goes all over. This narrative of racial difference impacts all of us. And guess what it does to the people who buy into it? It dehumanizes them as well because they no longer see the value and goodness of others. They now think of themselves in a deified sort of state and they demonize others. It, it degrades all of us, which is why it grieves God's heart. So how do we, how do we deal with this? What do, we, what do we do with all of this? How do we, how do we uh, navigate these waters without being so overwhelmed by all of these problems? Well, one of the things that we do is this, is we believe the truth of the gospel that says our sin our guilt 
does not have the last word to define us. There's a phrase uh, coined by uh, another sociologist called white fragility. How many of you have heard that before? White fragility is basically this idea that, that uh, talking about this, white people are too fragile. They're like China. And so, so you, talk about, you talk about this with them, uh, and they can't handle it, and they break down, right? The guilt overwhelms them. Tim's laughing. He's like, it's me right now, um, right? They just, it's like too much. They're like, no more. Don't talk about it, right? It's just overwhelming. But let me tell you this. For the Christian, white fragility cannot exist. The Christian is used to their sins being talked about. Are they not? The, 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 whole, the whole identity of a Christian is that we sin, <laughs> which is why Jesus is so incredible. And so when we speak about this topic of racial, racial justice, uh, we, we do. If there is feelings of guilt, if feelings of contrition, feelings of conviction, uh, that is the Holy Spirit's work in us. So, so we, we embrace that. However, we don't fall into the, the trap of white fragility that says, I can't handle this. No, it's, it's okay. Jesus forgives us of our sins. The, the, the enemy in speaking about racial justice or any injustice is never, for a Christian, the enemy is never another person. The enemy is always the effects of sin. It's never the person, right? So there is no need for, for a sense of shame to, 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 to wash over us where we say, I'm a white person. I have benefited from a racialized society. Yes, you have. Stop feeling ashamed. Pray and ask God's kingdom to come and change things. Right? So, so don't feel it. There's no sense of a shame that needs to wash over us. What should wash over us is a sense of we want the kingdom to come. And where I have bought into a lie, unknowingly, Jesus help me. There is, this, is, this is the thing when we think about racialization and, and racism. We think that that, those, that, that that racialization and racism cannot coexist with good intentions. It, it can. Most people that have a racist ideology did not wake up and say, I would like to be a racist today. Where can I receive the form? Nobody does that. The way it goes forward is it's so ingrained in our society that we pick it up without knowing it. I mean, we're made in the image of God, people. If we were to go hand out tracts on the streets of Somerville and say, hey, would you like to become a racist today? Would you like to hold racist ideology? No one's doing that. I mean, we might find two or three people that would do that. Everyone else would say, no way, stop. You need to, you need to not do this. This doesn't work. And yet we look at policies. We look at the way things really happen. We see the same outcomes. So what is it? It's subtle. It's a highly adaptable sin. And so we need to do this if we're going to fight against this because of the kingdom of God, if we're going to break down the wall of hostility, if we're going to chip at it the way Paul chipped at it in the first century, if we're going to do that in the 21st century, we need to first do this, become aware of the problem, which we have just unpacked. And the second thing we need to do is we need to look at our own hearts and say, is there a wall of indifference, hostility, or resentment, superiority or inferiority inside of me? Is there a wall inside of me? Where have you been impacted by the narrative of racial difference? In a place probably where you are not even aware. This is why as Christians we celebrate prayer where we can say, God, like the psalmist, my sins are too many for me to know. If this is in me, God, take it, heal it, expose it, redeem it. That's how we pray for the kingdom to come. 
You might ask this as how we break down the wall. We'll become aware of the problem. We ask God to do something in us. We, might, we, we can do this as well. We might even ask this. We can break down the wall. We can take a hammer to the wall uh, of dividing hostility or indifference within us. We can ask, where are we living in a bubble? Are all the people we know exactly like us? Is everything that we read from people exactly like us? Are all the mentors in my life exactly like me? This is how we take a hammer to that wall. We take a hammer to the wall by also understanding that our culture is not the standard. There's a story from a pastor named Daniel Hill in Chicago uh, who was in a, a wedding uh, for one of his good friends. Uh, his good friend was of uh, Southern Asian descent, and he was wearing traditional garb uh, at the wedding. And Daniel, who was white, uh, comes to him and says, man, this is so incredible. Like, it's just so amazing. I wish I had a culture that was amazing. I don't, just don't have a culture. And, uh, and Daniel's friend was like, you need to stop. <laughs> He's like, you need to stop now. What do you mean? You, ha- you have a culture. He said, you're white. You think you don't have a culture. You, you do have a culture, and your culture is everything's right. So one of the ways we we knock down this wall is to understand that we all have a culture and that our culture is not the standard. The standard of what is right or what is good is God's word. But there are cultural things that are neither bad nor good. They're just culture. For example, think about this, right? Think about uh, Source of Light, the Haitian church that used to meet here and now we're here and now they meet there, right? Their worship, is it the same as ours or is it different? It's different, right? Now, if your reaction to their worship, John's like, I got that right. <laughs> He's like, honey, did you hear this? Yes, John. Yes, John. Don't say you do so many other great, great things than getting that right, but good. I'm glad you bragged about that. Um, right? But, but, think of, but think about this, right? Their style of worship is different than our style of worship. Is ours bad and theirs good or theirs bad and ours good? They're just different. They're just different. So if we ever come in like, that's a weird, like, It's not weird, it's just different. The Word of God says to worship Jesus. It doesn't talk much about should you do it loud like it's a celebration or do it like we do, quiet like it's a funeral. It doesn't really say one or the other. Maybe not a funeral because Jesus rose, so maybe it should be a little bit more exciting, right? But it's just just two different cultures. And what the narrative of racial difference would teach you to do is to look at that as less than, as emotional, as unintelligent as not smart, as uncrit, right? It, that's what the narrative of racial difference will do. But the Christian who understands the word of God and understands the heart of the king will look at those and say, hey, this is just the nations. One culture nation does it like this, other culture nation does it like this. Cool. It's okay to have a preference, but we don't get to say this is better, this is right, this is not true, unless the word of God itself says that to us. Do we understand? So we need to, we need to knock down the wall of hostility or indifference within us where we elevate one culture over the other when the Word of God doesn't say anything about that. Does that make sense? So this is one of the ways we knock down the wall and we begin to appreciate the diversity that God has put in the hearts of His creation. And here is the solution for this. We pray. We pray, then we act. We ask the King to do what we can't do. We ask him to convict, we ask him to heal, we ask him to expose, we ask him to forgive, we ask Jesus to do what only he can do, and then we act. But ultimately, the way that the wall is broken down, it's broken down in this text through Jesus' body. 
The wall is broken through Jesus' body. Look at what it says in the passage. He himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the commands expressed in the ordinance that he might create in himself, again, in his body, in himself, one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. Jesus, through the cross, breaks down the power of sin to divide us across cultural and ethnic lines. He does it by abolishing the, these external commands about external purity. It says, no, 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 no. The, way that any, only, the only way that any of y'all are getting close to God is through my grace. So he puts away these, these laws, of ceremonial laws, and he establishes this new way by grace. It's through his body, through his cross. His arms are open wide on the cross to signify two things, I think, if we were to read it allegorically. His arms are open wide on the cross to say, all nations come. That's why his arms are open wide. All nations come because all of you have the same exact need and all of you are exactly with the same qualification because it comes through me. All of you are depraved and in need of a Savior across all lines and all of you are able to come to the Savior because of what I've done. Christ in his body is the solution. Christ in his sacrifice shows us the way. And so we pray and we ask for the king to expose within us where we've bought into a lie about other human beings, and we pray for him to bring his kingdom more rightly, more justly within our midst, within our city, within our world, that we would come around the Savior and experience the community of oneness under Jesus Christ. So we pray for his kingdom to come. And we understand the cross is the hammer that breaks down the wall. God, we thank you that you are patient uh, and that you are gracious. We thank you that you, uh, you put up with us, um, Lord, in our sin, in our struggle, in our stubbornness, uh, in our feelings of superiority or inferiority. Lord, you, you, you're patient with us, and, and we are most of all uh, grateful that that patience uh, culminates in the work of Jesus, who, uh, who forgives us of our sins, who restores our dignity, uh, and who... Uh, gives us hope uh, for the future. And so, Jesus, we ask that for your kingdom to come uh, in our hearts, in our lives, and in our relationships, and in our country, in our world, Lord, that um, people will be treated justly and equitably, and, and that your church would reflect uh, your heart for the nations. Help, help us to uh, reflect that. Help our city to reflect that, Lord, and we pray for your kingdom to come uh, in the area of racial justice, that you would break down dividing walls of hostility uh, through your good news. Lord, and that your kingdom would be uh, more fully seen here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in your name. Amen.